Hello, and welcome back to Banjo Strings and Drinking Gourds, the podcast at the Frontier Culture Museum of Virginia. I'm Alex, and today we are going to talk about smallpox. And the following quote describes life in England in the 17th century, but it could hold true for any of the exhibits we show at the museum. Quote, the smallpox was always present, filling the churchyards with corpses, tormenting with constant fears all whom it had stricken, leaving on those whose lives it spared the hideous traces of its power, turning the babe into a changeling at which the mother shuddered, and making the eyes and cheeks of the big-hearted maiden objects of horror to the lover. End quote. This is from Victorian historian T.B. Macaulay, and he wrote this in the History of England. But it could have been written about Germany, Ireland, anywhere in the future United States or anywhere in North America, and really anywhere in the world. While smallpox as a disease has been around for thousands of years, the disease seemed to have became much more severe during the 17th and 18th century. Quote, little by little, heavy shadows and black night enveloped our fathers and grandfathers and also, oh, my sons. When the plague raged, the people could not in any way control the sickness. Great was the stench of death. After our fathers and grandfathers succumbed, half the people fled into the fields. The dogs and vultures devoured the bodies. The mortality was horrible, end quote. This quote is from the Annals of the Cacels, a Guatemala chronicle describing life in the 17th and 18th century. There are many quotes on the horrors of smallpox, or as it's sometimes referred to as the speckled monster. Today we are going to talk about this. What was really going on? Was it really the scourge of the 17th and 18th century? Did it play any part in the formation of the future United States? This is a very sad story as more people died from smallpox during this time period than anything else. Yet the story has a happy ending because the steps taken to somehow bring smallpox under control eventually down the road is going to lead into the elimination of smallpox from human society. I'm very lucky to have a very knowledgeable guest to help me talk about smallpox. Lucy is a senior from William and Mary studying medical history. Lucy, when younger, attended the summer camp at the museum, worked as an intern a few years ago, and over the last year has worked at the museum as a camp counselor and interpreter. Lucy hopes to get her PhD in medical history and is one of the smartest people I know. Welcome to the podcast, Lucy. Thank you. So the first question for you, Lucy, is what exactly is smallpox? Okay. So smallpox is a, a viral infection. Um, so not a bacteria or anything like that. It's a virus and it's a respiratory infection. So you get it by breathing in the particles of the virus. So that can either be because someone who has smallpox has smallpox sores and their mouth coughs on you, or it can be from something like inhaling the dust from the scabs falling off of someone who's recovering from smallpox. Smallpox is a very infectious disease. It's also very, very deadly. The case fatality rate for smallpox is on average about 43%. So 43% of people who get smallpox die of smallpox. That's an average that can swing a little bit lower or a lot higher depending on the circumstances. For comparison, the case fatality rate for COVID-19, when it was really bad in 2020, we had no way to treat it at all, was 4.9%. So smallpox is really quite serious. It's also a really long disease. 
On the short end of things, your smallpox infection is going to last about a month. After you're exposed to smallpox, there's an incubation period of about 12 to 14 days. You don't show any symptoms during this period and you aren't contagious, but it does make smallpox hard to track because you show symptoms so long after you interact with the person who made you sick that it's hard to figure out when exactly you picked up the disease. The first thing that happens when you start showing smallpox symptoms is the first fever. This lasts for about one to four days, and you basically feel like you have the flu. Headache, nausea, body aches, vomiting, all that good stuff. It can also cause intense anxiety. So if you have all these flu-like symptoms and you're super anxious or you're having terrible nightmares, that might be a sign that you have smallpox. This fever begins to fade. You start to feel a little bit better, but then it returns towards the end of that four-day period, and smallpox really, really starts to get its boots on, really starts to make you feel absolutely terrible. So over the course of the next day or so, sores will begin to develop in your mouth, nasal passages, throat, sometimes even your ear canals. Um, and at that point, you become highly contagious, and things really start to suck for you and the people that are taking care of you. The next 10 to 12 days are the worst part of the, the disease process. The sores that have already developed in your mouth and nose, etc., etc., start to spread across your body, and they're particularly heavy on your face, back, hands, feet, neck, and forearms. Uh, they're hard to touch, they're raised, and they have a little dimple in the center that's very characteristic of smallpox sores. They're extraordinarily painful. They're stretching out your skin, they're pushing it up away from your body. Um, and you're also very feverish, so the end result is that your body feels like it's burning. As time passes towards the end of this 10 to 12 day period, those sores will start to crack open and scab over, which is equally painful. Um, those sores are now sticking to your blankets and tearing open every time you move, but eventually they scab over and begin to heal. This is when you're starting to get over smallpox. If you get to this point, you will survive, but these sores have done such damage to your skin that you likely will have at least some scarring as a result of having this disease, and in a lot of cases, really heavy scarring, particularly on the face. Um, after these scabs start to come and begin to fall off, you're not as sick, but you're still contagious until that last scab falls off your body, which can take up to a month after you first get infected. Um, so that's the sort of basic outline of what smallpox looks like. It sounds absolutely terrible. Yeah, it's not not super fun. It's not a super fun disease to have at all. And um, but one of the key things is if you get it, you are really incapacitated for a month, mm -hmm. and that's on a good case. And a good case means you are going to survive. You're not going to die from it. Right. And it might take you months to get back to where you once were before you actually had smallpox. Yeah, exactly. It's a really debilitating disease. It's really painful. You can't really move at all. Um, and depending on when you get it or who's around you, you might not get care that whole time you're sick too. So if you survive, you might be really malnourished and sickly afterwards anyway. And the other thing that you always hear about smallpox is it's extremely contagious. Mm -hmm. That That if you were... In a room with someone with smallpox, more likely than not, you will come down with smallpox. Exactly. The nice thing is that if you do manage to survive, you're immune for life. You have no chance of getting smallpox more than once. So you can have it once, and then you can be around people that have it. You can help to treat them. Uh, you can be near them without risk. So na nailing this down on smallpox... 
looking at this because it depends on really what the lesions are doing when they break out yes. or, or the poxes break out. So my understanding, if they break out and there's a lot of skin between breakouts, that's a good sign. Yeah, that's a really good sign. It means that your body's having a more robust response to the virus. It's not doing as much damage to your skin. The rash isn't as extreme. And so those lesions aren't as close together. That's a really good prognosis. You're, you should be excited about that. That means you'll likely survive. The mortality rate goes down, all that good stuff. And these are, um, and to give an example, George Washington had um, smallpox. He had a mild case. That's what they all say. But even with that mild case, he was very sick and did not write in his journal for about a month, which is something that George Washington always wrote in his journal. So that gives you a sign of how sick he was. Then the next thing is if the lesions start to merge in one another, especially on the face. That's a really bad sign. So normally, normally, smallpox is not a normal state to be in, but (laughs) normally smallpox lesions don't connect with each other in a serious case of smallpox. So there can be few lesions and it's great. You can have a lot of lesions that aren't connected to each other and that's not great, but not terrible. If the lesions start to bleed into one another and form large masses under your skin, that is not a good sign at all. That's called confluent smallpox and the mortality rate rises for confluent smallpox. It's also sadly more common in children. Um, So it can be much more devastating if that's the, the form of the disease you happen to get. And on the readings that we have done, if smallpox gets to this stage, you have a 60% chance of dying. And it depends. It might even be a bit more. Yeah. And as you were mentioning about children, um, someone has done a statistic in England in the 17th century looking at children who have died. So this would be from infants all the way up to adolescents and have determined that one-third of all childhood deaths in this time period was because of smallpox. Which means if you had kids, every single time they had a fever, you lived in fear that it was going to develop into smallpox. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It was really terrifying disease. And then the last case, <laughs> and this one is really bad um, because it's 100% fatal. It's when you start hemorrhaging um, inside. Yeah, so with hemorrhagic smallpox, basically what happens to you is the rash that you get from smallpox, those lesions that you get from smallpox, they don't form on your skin, they don't form on the outside of your body, they form on the inside of your body. And this basically just causes you to bleed internally. It's also like gross blood, it's like really thick and heavily clotted, and so you have these black spots all over your body. Um, Those are the signs that you're developing this form of smallpox, and... It sort of ends with you bleeding really heavily out of all of your orifices and dying of that bleeding. This, Like Alex said, this form of smallpox was, if you had it, you would die of it. It was not a good way to go. One way you told me that you would know if you had it is if your eyes turned black or red. Yes. Um, Because the bleeding is so heavy and your body is just sort of losing the ability to stop from bleeding into itself and that blood is still clotting it just can't stop bleeding um the whites of your eyes might turn black because of the amount of clotted blood that's sitting behind them that just is very very frightening (laughs) so now getting on where 
is the first cases or examples of smallpox? So the first known examples that we have, we think smallpox probably came into being when we started to domesticate plants and animals. We started to do agriculture. Um, the first known cases that we have show up in Egyptian mummies that date to around 2500 BC. Um, so they're very old. It's a very old disease. It's been around for much of human history. Um, and like I said, we have evidence of it that's showing up in ancient Egypt, and it just continues from that. And I guess the, the key thing is how they wrap up their mummies, the skin survives, so you can see that they're pockmarked. Yes, exactly. Um, and depending on the person, so mummification means you're preserving stock tissue. So some mummies will have smallpox scars on their skin uh, that show they survived it when they were a child or whatever have you. Um, and some will have smallpox lesions still on their body, and so you can tell that they died of that disease. And I guess one of the things that has as we've been reading about this, that becomes very prominent is if you live in an urban area close together with all sorts of critters, and I guess on this one, it's going to be more like mice. Mm -hmm. It's always mice. It's always mice. <laughs> um, where it seems to have jumped into humans and caused this terrible disease. Yes, exactly. Um, the minute that you get large settled human populations, smallpox can survive. Small populations, it burns through them so quickly, it can't move into another population. But the minute you get big settled populations, smallpox starts to really flourish. And the next time where smallpox seems to become, and this is debatable, it's a little bit of controversial, is in about 160, 170 AD, there is the Antonine Plague. And um, we know a lot about this is because there is a Greek doctor, Galen, who wrote about it. And the description he describes could be smallpox or it might be something else. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a little... A little strange. It's not quite what we're used to seeing when it comes to descriptions of smallpox. But the thing about it is, is that smallpox is a virus that moves very quickly through populations, and it's very likely that it's mutated several times over the course of its history. When you get into the 19th century, smallpox mutates, and the more common form of it becomes a lot less severe than it had been previously. Um, so, with that particular plague, it might just have been it mutated and became extra severe, but couldn't last because it was so severe, it burned through its host population. And cities got absolutely depopulated during this time period. And a lot of scholars have said this is the beginning of the end for um, the Western part of the Roman Empire, that from this point on, they seem to be plagued um, by all sorts of different plagues. Um, and one of the issues they had is they just never had enough people to do what they needed to do. <laughs> Again, this is speculation. And um, we are now going to jump a couple of hundred years to Europe in the Middle Ages. And what has happened to smallpox? So smallpox in Europe in the Middle Ages is much less of a thing so far as we can tell. It's 
not as deadly, and it seems to have become a disease of childhood. And that could be for two reasons. Um, it could be that it's mutated again, and it's just gotten less intense, less severe. The other thing could be that if you have populations that are routinely exposed to smallpox in childhood, the adult population becomes quite immune to that disease and because they've survived it. So it becomes a disease of childhood. You have it, you live, and the, po the adult population is immune, so it becomes less of a destructive force for adults and whole populations and becomes much more of something that happens to you when you're small and then ceases to be an issue. Then we come to the end of the 16th into the 17th century, and this is where it becomes more severe. Mm -hmm. um, is Do we know why it becomes more severe, or is it a little bit of a mystery? It's a little bit of a mystery. It's probably, again, I keep saying virus probably mutated, probably changed a little bit, became more infectious, that kind of thing. I personally would also attribute it to a bit of a change in the way that we look at records, the way that we keep records, the Middle Ages were very different time medically in terms of the way that we talk about and understood disease, um, which could be impacting how we look at statistics of who had what and how they died and all that good stuff. But moving into the 17th and 18th centuries, we're beginning to develop science as we know it now in the Western world. And so it becomes easier for us to understand what diseases people are talking about, when and how. And smallpox has an interesting way because it just doesn't affect poor people or urban people, it also infects the elite. And an example of this in 17th century England is the Stuarts. Smallpox really is what wipes out the Stuarts. So um, Charles I had lots of children. Unfortunately, he loses his head in 1649. Um, but eventually, his son, Charles II, will become king. Now, Charles has two brothers, James, um, who's going to be the future James II, and he turns into a Catholic, and Henry, the Duke of Gloucester, who's 21 years old, supposedly very good looking, or that's what the accounts say, um, and also is a Protestant. And there's a very good chance if he had lived, they probably would have given him the crown instead of James, except he dies at 21 of smallpox. They have another sister, Princess Mary, who married William, um, of Orange, which is very confusing because this is not the William and Mary everyone thinks about. <laughs> um, but um, she will die of smallpox at 29. Her husband also dies of smallpox. They have a son called William, who is now going to marry the Mary, the daughter of the future King James II. Um, and they eventually will become king and queen in 1689, after the Glorious Revolution of 1688. She's young. You would expect that they are going to have children, except she gets smallpox at the age of 32 um, in 1694 and dies at Christmas. She has a sister, Queen Anne. Queen Anne is married, um, and her life is very sad because she has multiple pregnancies, most of them miscarriage, and a lot of the live births, the children die soon after. And two of her daughters um, will die of smallpox as infants. But she does have one son, also called William. They're very imaginative in their names. Um, and he is also the Duke of Gloucester. And it is speculated when he turned 11, he dies um, in 1700. This puts a crisis. There are no male heirs or any Stuart heirs who are not Catholic. And Queen Anne 
um, is eventually going to become queen because she is the only Stuart that's around. And that comes, um, and it causes a little crisis and it involves in the act of settlement of 1701, where they have made a rule that the crown can only go to someone who is a Protestant. And if they are married to a Catholic, then that won't work. They have to be a Protestant and married to a Protestant. And it is going to start the Hanover reign, where luckily the name William goes out of fashion and George will come into fashion. (laughs) And now we are going to go to America, which is the main part of this whole podcast. And it all starts when Columbus discovers Hispaniola in 1492. And this is where you were mentioning um, where if people have never had smallpox before, never experienced it, when they finally do experience it, it's usually going to be bad. Mm-hmm. This is all part of the Columbia Exchange. There are good parts of the Columbia Exchange. Food gets exchanged. A lot of the food we eat is from um, the Americas. Um, the bad part is diseases are going to spread more rapidly. Yes. And we are going to look at the little island of Hispaniola. Little, it's actually quite big and mountainous. Um, and the Arawak people, um, and I hope I pronounced that correctly, um, historians estimate that there could be one million people. That, that is a figure that is debated. Some people say the population might have been as low as 500,000. But what they do know is within 30 years, that population has decreased to about 15,000 people. And there's a number of factors on this. The number one factor is smallpox. Smallpox comes to the island and just rages over these people. Another factor is the Spanish try to enslave these people and work them in mines and clearing land, farming the way the Spanish want to farm and not the way um, the Arawak people want to farm. Um, and this also causes a lot of stress among them. And one of the things that is very noticeable that if you have stress or malnourished or some other conditions and then a pandemic hits, the pandemic is always worse. And that's what seems to happen here. But it is an example that is going to happen over and over again in the Americas as Spanish or Portuguese or English or French move into an area They are bringing their diseases with them, and the consequences on the native populations is dire. Absolutely. So that is repeated over and over again. But we don't want to keep stressing that point. So one of the things that does start changing, and it's very interesting, and this is where Lucy wrote a paper about this, and it's in Boston in the 1720s. So we're going to jump ahead to Boston in 1720. Yes. Um, and Boston 1720 is a very interesting smallpox case because in 1718, Lady Mary Wortley Montague, who is someone who survived smallpox when she was younger and has been horribly disfigured by it and is very paranoid about it, very intensely focused on it as a disease, writes back to England from Turkey, where she's living with her husband, um, about this new practice that she's discovered. Discovered. She didn't discover it. She just found out about it. Um, inoculation, whereby you deliberately infect yourself with smallpox. Um, in so doing, because you're putting it into your bloodstream instead of inhaling it, the form of the disease that you get is much less severe. You're still sick. You're still contagious. 
but the case fatality rate for smallpox that you get by inoculation sits about 2% rather than at about 40%. So your odds are much better. And this is a practice that was pretty well dispersed throughout the Middle East and parts of Africa, but that wasn't common in Europe. Lady Mary is the first person to sort of put that out there in about 1718. At about the same time in Boston, in the in the British North American colonies, Cotton Mather, um, Puritan minister of the crucible, but at this point, a much more calm man of science, is also being exposed to inoculation as a concept through conversations that he's having with one of his enslaved persons um, who was inoculated in West Africa before he was kidnapped and brought to the colonies. And so when smallpox breaks out in Boston in 1721, Cotton Mather starts publishing a bunch of tracts encouraging people to get inoculated. And this sparks a crazy debate in Boston. It's a very religious city, and people see smallpox at this time as something that is coming from God, either as a punishment, as an encouragement for you to rethink how you're living your life, something like that. And God's deciding who's living and dying smallpox, and to mess with that is to mess with God, and inoculation is messing with that. But the thing is that Cotton Mather actually ends up having a lot of allies, even among very religious men living in Boston at this time. And the inoculation debates that spring up here are a great example of the ways that the way people think about disease and talk about disease reflect what society is doing more broadly. Because this is the period when the Enlightenment is really starting to take off. It's really starting to get wind in its sails. It's becoming very popular. And so all these doctors, all these men of religion are starting to think about disease differently. And they're also starting to think about God differently. And this is a great example of that. Disease is becoming not something that God is using to punish you, but something that occurs because of something happening in nature. And God is giving you the gift of inoculation to help you to treat that the consequences of nature interfering with human life. Um, so this is... I have a quote from Benjamin Coleman, who was a doctor living in Boston in 1721, in a tract that he published some observations on the new method of receiving the smallpox by engrafting or inoculating. He writes, quote, the blessing of God went along with it. Inoculated patients found ease and sweetness and lay praising God on their beds, or rather sat upon their chairs doing so. Their friends stood smiling around about them. And that's the end of the quote. Their friends shouldn't have been standing smiling about them. You're still contagious when you're being inoculated. But the point here is Coleman sees inoculation as something that has been given to humanity by God rather than something that humanity is using to usurp God. And that's a really big change in the way that people think about science and religion. And it's a result of the Enlightenment and it's shaping the way that people interact with smallpox, which is really very interesting. And it... It's really the start, and it's not just in Boston, it's all over Europe at this mm -hmm. time, um, where people are beginning to look at public health as a matter of state. Exactly. And that is very interesting because during COVID and the responses to COVID, the same debates keep coming up over and over again. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> but we are now going to jump um, to the Revolutionary War. And there is a great book that was written... Um, in a few years ago, called Pox Americana, the Great Smallpox Epidemic of 1775 to 1782 by Elizabeth Fenn. And it is described in that when the Revolutionary War is going on, 
there is also a smallpox epidemic that is breaking out. And the genius of this book is she, Elizabeth Fenn, traces this outbreak all over the future United States into areas that they don't control. So she actually shows how it goes from the Boston area up into Canada, up into Hudson Bay, up into the trade routes right there, um, how it travels down south um, to various places, jumps to New Orleans, jumps to Mexico, starts coming back up the coast into the California and New Mexico um, areas that the Spanish are controlling. Um, and literally, somehow over the next five to seven years, this smallpox epidemic really manages to break out all over the United States, Canada, and Mexico. And it interestingly has a couple of interesting things that actually helped the Americans win. Um, the first one is during the siege of Boston in 1775, Boston has another outbreak. Um, and one of the things that the British who are controlling Boston at the time and the people in Boston are willing to do is they're willing to inoculate themselves as they're being besieged because they are so worried about smallpox. The other thing, George Washington, the commander of the Continental Forces, is also so worried about smallpox. They're going to things where they're literally banning troops from going into Boston because they're hearing of the outbreaks. They're worried that the British might be sending people who are contagious out into their lines to try to infect the Americans. So there's the fear of um, biological warfare. And there's good reason for that because the British did try to give Indians um, blankets infected with smallpox. So there, there was a, they had tried that before. So that was in the back of everyone's mind. And it started a debate among the Continental Congress and the army is should inoculation be part of um, being or joining the condition of joining the Continental Army. And again, it's very controversial. Everyone is worried about catching it. Everyone's worried about dying if you get inoculated. And the other fact is you are contagious. So if someone is inoculated and starts joining the army and they're not having that 30-day quarantined that they should be in, that they could spread it to people who have not had the pox. And so that is a big concern. And so these are going on. Shortly after the siege of Boston is lifted, the British leave, um, the Continental Army goes and invades Quebec. And this is when smallpox affects the army in a very drastic way. And it seems um, as they finally get established around the Plains of Abraham, they're all set to um, take on Quebec, a smallpox epidemic breaks out among the army units, and they are devastated. Um, the people, not everyone dies, but the people who have it are so sick that they can't perform their duties. Um, over 500 people die. It's a big disaster, and the British are able to get a good four to 500 prisoners. And a lot of the prisoners will end up dying from smallpox or suffer miserably in the jails because they are going through smallpox. In the retreat, it seems that 700 Continental Army um, people died from smallpox. There's a lot of um, material that's written about what's going on with this retreat, how it's going. And they really have no gasp of how big the army is, how many people are dying, because so many people are deserted, leaving. Um, they're bringing smallpox back to various villages in New England, and it starts a whole epidemic up in New England. And it's one of the things that, from this debacle comes the policy 
established in 1777 that everyone in the Continental Army, if you have not had smallpox, you are going to be inoculated. And if you were going to join the army and you have not had smallpox, you will be inoculated. So it is an example of a large-scale state-sponsored immunization campaign in American history, the first time that this goes on. And it pays dividends because the Continental Army is not worried about smallpox from this point on out. The British on the other side, and this starts in 1775 with Lord Dunmore's proclamation of um, offering freedom if you go and join the British Army, resulted in up to a thousand, maybe more, um, the numbers are hard to say, of um, enslaved people joining the British Army in the Virginia area. And again, this is bringing a group of people, for the most part, who have not had smallpox, who have usually lived in one very small area and not had the ability to move around a lot, all of a sudden coming together in mass with other people from Europe who might have smallpox um, or recovered from smallpox. Um, and it's disastrous. They all get very sick. And it's hard to, to guess how many of these died, but the evidence is between five to 800, and they called this regiment the Ethiopian Regiment, died of smallpox. It's a disaster. It never works. They never were tested. And this is a big counterfactual. What if they didn't get smallpox? What if they did fight the Virginia militia at this time and won? It could have had a disastrous effect on American independence because it would have really put the whole Southern campaign in a different perspective. Um, so it's a very interesting campaign. The other thing about this outbreak is the effect it had on Native people who really have not had much contact with um, people who are living on the East Coast. And it devastates communities inside. And it's very interesting um, as you see how it gets to the West Coast. But what is also interesting is how it affects the Plains Indians at this time. And it seems exactly when smallpox is coming in is when the horse and gun comes into these groups of people. And it completely changes their society, how they look at things. And it seems that the groups that are more Normanic and are moving around more do a lot better. So the Black Root, the Sioux are going to survive this a little bit better than a group called the Mandadins, um, which were lived more in villages. Um, and no one knows the number, but when Lewis and Clark went through this area, they wrote about how there were so many abandoned villages. And it seems this group of people lived in 32 villages and soon after the smallpox hit in the 1780s were reduced to two villages. And when Lewis and Clark came, that's where they were. Um, sadly, it's going to get a lot worse. They're much weaker and other groups are going to take them over very soon. Another group that suffered tremendously, but then we rebounded um, were the Comanche. They're a group that developed horses and then through their trade routes from, believe it or not, the Hudson Bay Company are able to acquire guns from that way um, because the Spanish were very strict on trying not to give guns to native groups, um, acquired guns, but they also got smallpox. And what's interesting is this is a very warlike group that was at war with Texas, which is part of Spain at the, or part of Mexico and part of Spain at this time in New Mexico. Um, become very quiet in the 1780s. And again, they think it's because of smallpox. It mm -hmm. raged through um, and 
hard to say what the the casualty rate is. Um, it's also the same for the Indians who are living in the Southeast United States. And so after the war, one of the things that all of the groups that were Indian groups that were supporting the British all of a sudden feel abandoned. Um, they have gone through an epidemic of smallpox. Their numbers are greatly reduced and they have a stronger, um, the now United States who are willing to now push west. So it does not do well. And smallpox is part of the answer on that. And we really should end on a good note. <laughs> we really should. I mean, the one thing that research in this that has become very evident is every single exhibit we show at the museum would be suffering through smallpox. Mm -hmm. If you were either a survivor of smallpox or you most likely knew people who had died of smallpox or if you were a parent, you would be so much concerned about your kids. But life does get better. They figure out how to solve it. It does. It does get better. In the, we figure out how inoculation works in the early 18th century. In the later 18th century, an American doctor, or was he British? He's British. He's British. A British doctor by the name of Edward Jenner um, develops the smallpox vaccine. Vaccination, you're putting either not the same disease or particles of the disease into your body. Edward Jenner uses cowpox. He notices that milkmaids that he's treating in his role as country doctor don't ever get smallpox because they've had cowpox that they get sores on their hands for milking cows. And he begins to wonder if he can use cowpox, which is much less severe, much less deadly, um, to inoculate against smallpox. And so he deliberately infects an eight-year-old farmhand by the name of James Phipps with cowpox, lets him go through that disease process, and then exposes him to smallpox, um, gambling, hoping desperately that he doesn't get sick, and he doesn't. And so we develop vaccination. Vaca is Latin for cow, so vaccination has that little hint about how it came about in the name. But once we have a vaccine for smallpox, it gets much less terrifying. Vaccination is by no means common practice, but it's something that is an option and people do have it done. And also into the 19th century, we begin to see varial minor become more and more prevalent, um, which is a much less severe form of the disease. So smallpox gets, while it's still a huge problem, much less terrible. But still, in the 20th century, so 1900 to 2000, 300 million people die of smallpox. That's more than everyone, soldiers, civilians, who died in both world wars combined. It's still a very deadly disease. And it's got huge consequences. It's excruciating. It's horrible to suffer. And so we begin as a human population to make an effort globally to eradicate the disease by vaccinating as many people as we possibly can. And that process worked. The last natural case of smallpox occurred in Somalia in the late 1970s. And the last case of smallpox period, which was caused by um, an infection from a lab getting into air ducts and being inhaled, um, was in like 1980. So smallpox currently is not active in any human population. It still exists in labs in several different countries, but it's no longer something that we have to worry about 
we don't know people who have terrible pockmark scars. We don't know people who lost three or four siblings in a month and a half to smallpox. That's not something that we have to worry about anymore, and that's really fantastic. So that is good news. We won't <laughs> mention the fact that it's still there in labs, and it could be weaponized. <laughs> Who knows? We'll, we'll leave that on the back burner. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, but it is something, when you go through the museum, just think about the fact that, that re- smallpox really was a scourge, and people really were concerned about it. Um, and it really did have an effect um, in the Revolutionary War, and really as... Um, the European settlers started pushing west from this point on. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Lucy, very much for joining the podcast for today. Of course. Thank you for inviting me to. And thank you for listening.